This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. And yeah, once again, as always, I'm joined by Maxwell Bogue. How are you doing, hey, Max? I'm great. How are you doing, Joris? I'm doing good, man. I'm doing really, really good. I mean, uh, and I think right now, I think I'm, I'm really excited because we have a guest, and that's Todd Grimm. So welcome aboard, Todd. Well, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Always good to have yeah. a fellow Purdue alum. <laughs> oh, you're Purdue too? Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay, you, you held on to that one. You, you know surprised me there. <laughs> Mechanical engineering also. No, computer science. So. Oh, okay, you failed right there. At least I did, you're not I did. Ele- I know, I'm not, a, I'm not an Emmy. <laughs> yeah, well, at least you're not an electrical engineer because Emmys never liked the Sparkies. When we're in <laughs> well, it's, it's the Simmies that we always really, uh, you know, look down on, right? Everyone can look down on the Simmies. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not going there. I'm not going there. <laughs> okay, that's very comforting since they build bridges and things. That's yeah. very good. Um, uh <laughs> So Todd is a longstanding industry consultant who's been working in the industry uh, for decades. And he's has his own firm, uh, T.A. Grimm Associates, and he does a lot of marketing and analysis and strategic analysis work. And if you do, you, if you've been to a trade show, there's a big chance that you've seen Todd because he's done a lot of presenting and, and, and panels and, and presentations and things like that and a lot of big shows as well. And that's where you probably uh, know him from if you've met him. And uh, yeah, so so Todd, uh, yeah, welcome aboard. Well, thank um, you. As I said, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. And so we were uh, chatting a little bit off uh, about I think I think one thing that's really important uh, in 3D printing is like expectation management and the way you set expectations. And uh, and Todd actually in the kind of before we started recording brought up LOM and LOM or L O M uh, was a, a technology that was like a laser. <laughs> It was basically laser-based, so you'd cut out a shape on a laser on paper, and then you would stick a new layer on it. Later on, MCOR would uh, do the technology again with blades, but of course, you, you could probably understand. Anyone could wait, understand. Wait, wait, wait. That... <laughs> Sorry, I just so I'm clear here. It's like you're just cutting into a stack of paper? No, exactly single right. sheet at well, a time. Oh, oh, yeah. so wait, I so cut the piece around. of paper, and then stack. I put the piece of paper, a new yeah. piece of paper on top? Yeah. yeah. And you cut Manually. That, and then you... No, 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 no. no. Was okay, there was a feeder. Okay. It had it had that going for it. It was okay, I'm just checking, you know. <laughs> yeah. But essentially it's stacking automatically stacking paper which you cut to shape and then oh, the, the paper makes the layers. Um now of course but having that this happening with lasers um, of course, it didn't go well, right? So these things started catching fire. Oh, and always a survey. <laughs> and I was like, who, who would have known, right? Who would have thought you, such a thing was possible? <laughs> and, but, but you, you know, go, but yeah. if I can jump in, yours, yeah, please. Uh, that was definitely a problem. You know, the stories <laughs> of, you know, my law machine. And the company was called Helisys. Uh, early, early entrant. It was on the heels of 3D systems. Um, I don't know. Just maybe just after Stratasys, but my take on it is, you know, you're talking about expectations. Uh, mm-hmm. At the time that they're in the marketplace, all the conversation was around prototyping, not on pattern mm-hmm. making. So what mm-hmm. they ended up with is a wood-like model, mm-hmm. or which yeah. in the foundry industry would be a good pattern, and it worked out really well for complicated, uh, more complicated geometry because 
the foundries, the pattern makers were comfortable mm -hmm. with working with this wood like material. So they right. had a, I, mm -hmm. I think they had a bright future going that way, but mm -hmm. they cast their net too wide and they felt they had to be a player in the uh, prototyping mm -hmm. space, which means competing yeah. with Stratasys and 3D systems and uh, uh, EOS and powder centering. Well, they started to pitch their, their uh, output as a suitable prototype for evaluation mechanical designs. Ooh, now, if you can imagine this structure and the, the strength of a wood pattern and then the difficulty of removing excess material, right. it was not a good solution for that application. So mm -hmm. I think one thing that sunk their boat is they cast the net too wide and inappropriately. So they probably got a lot of uh -huh. attention, but now they spent all that time trying to cater to that uh -huh. application, which wasn't a good fit, which sucks away resources. Uh -huh. It's sucked away attention to what they really did well. And I think that just kind of gutted them a little bit. Plus, you know, burning machines is not a great story to have. Yeah. <laughs> what, so they're what, always like- What yeah, time period is this? This like, is the 90s. Yeah, this okay. All right, early all right. to mid 90s. Early mid 90s, fine. So, so they, there was always be this Helios machine and it would just be, it would be turned off, you know? There's a slightly charred smell of disappointment emanating from it. I shudder to think of modern day firms that have done a similar thing of casting the net too widely and then maybe end up being disappointing. Well, um, it, <laughs> well you, you shudder. What do you mean? You should be shuddering, no. not, not yeah. potential because it's yeah. still going on. And you know, I don't want to take anyone to task because there is marketing mm -hmm. and you've got to create, mm -hmm. you've got to engage minds to get mm -hmm. mind share and to get action. But mm -hmm. there's marketing and you've taken it too far and now you're into hyperbole that you can't mm -hmm. deliver on. And mm -hmm. I think that's, that's damaging to the company that does it, but even mm -hmm. more so it's damaging to the industry because yeah. expectations yeah. are set in yeah. improperly. And where we mm -hmm. are, you know, you've got those that believe in 3D printing and you got mm -hmm. quite a few people in the kind of that um, established status quo mentality that mm -hmm. don't want to believe in it. So that second category, any evidence they have that it doesn't work, they're going to use to support their position. So I can do, I can do million, uh, million part runs, annual production rate in my additive machine. And you don't tell them it's the size of a thumbtack. Uh, now someone goes mm -hmm. off and looks into it, realizes that it's got to be small components to get to those kind of quantities. And they don't want to see it come into their facility. Now they have a piece of evidence mm -hmm. to say, no, that's BS. Uh, don't believe what you hear. And then they tune everything out. So mm -hmm. proper positioning, I think is key. And, and you know, George, you know me, Max, maybe not so well, but uh, over the last 30 years I've been in the industry, mm -hmm. I've become, and I enjoy being the pragmatist. Uh, I call mm -hmm. it enthusiastically realistic where <laughs> my goal is to help people pull their head out of the clouds if they're mm -hmm. dreaming in near term, you know, it's okay to dream and innovate, but in near term, pull their heads out of the clouds to what the reality is today. But at the same time, have motivational nuggets of information to help pull the people mm -hmm. up that have their feet mm -hmm. cast in concrete yep. and don't mm -hmm. want to change. So I'm, I, everything mm -hmm. I talk about, I'm trying to bring it to this state of equilibrium that is mm -hmm. near term reality is kind of my mm -hmm. angle. Yeah. No, I like that. I like that. Because I think what you said earlier is exactly my problem with carbon. I think carbon as a technology is very interesting. Carbon as a material science play is very interesting because some of the materials, the, at least the short-term properties, I'm still a little skeptical of the long-term wearability of these properties and shear and all that kind of stuff, but are really kind of really interesting for the SLA application. 
but where it falls short is me is they're, they're pitching it as a, a, a manufacturing solution. And also pitching it as like, we're the first to manufacture, right? Uh, which clearly, even for VAT polymerization, SLA is, is wrong because DLP machines have been used to make millions of parts before. Um, and I'm thinking, you know, carbon, if they would have pitched it as a, a manufacturing thing for, you know, dental inserts or stuff like that, it's fine, right? But by pitching it much broadly and marketing it much more broadly, you know, knowing that there is a limitation on the, you know, the, the, the size of parts and, the, and then just the, uh, the cross-section or area of parts, like, I mean, I think that that for me, like, makes me much more skeptical about them. Uh, I think that's I don't, one. You know, George, I, I don't, I'm not going to take any one company hard to task. Yeah. I may use some as examples, yeah. but I agree with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, but it comes back to the proper casting of the net. So they cast it too wide. Well, even if you look back, uh, what, two years ago, maybe two and a half, Mm -hmm. three, uh, the message was forget prototype and go straight to production. And that was laughable. I mean, yeah, no, that doesn't work. Yeah, No one (laughs) in their right mind is going to do that. Now, their message could have been tuned to start with prototyping on the same machine, the same materials, and tomorrow jump into production. You know, so a really Mm -hmm. condensed path. But, you know, launching with... forget prototyping which by the way autodesk did too when 3d printing really started to gain some some attention and and momentum uh they came out with a message of you don't want to physically prototype you want to virtually prototype or digitally Mm -hmm. prototype so they were countering what reality was and now we know that you know there's a good blend of when you stick with digital when you convert to physical and the key Mm -hmm. thing and one thing i talk a lot about is the person on the receiving end having a decent enough understanding of both solutions to make the wise choice. And Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think a barrier we have right now, especially in the production context, I'm sorry, I'm just waxing eloquently. I hope eloquently. Is we have two camps. So you have the people that, and the companies and the departments that really, really understand traditional processes and maybe have a light understanding of additive. Well, they're not in a, real good position to make uh, the best decision on what process to use for the application mm-hmm. at hand. Likewise, if someone's all additive and light on traditional, they're, they're poorly served too. So for me, I think one thing that's going to move the industry forward is uh, information being uh, accessible and uh, digestible by the masses to make the good decision. Is that an additive mm-hmm. part? Yes, no. If so, what process? Right. Uh, and what considerations do I have? So we've, we've still got, you know, we've been doing this for 30 years. Uh, we still got a long way to go on the information stream uh, to support mm-hmm. widespread, for the high demand applications, widespread use of additive mm-hmm. uh, and, and a lot of other factors. But I, I, I always come back to the human being is the uh, competitive force against additive. It's the gray mm-hmm. matter <laughs> and what yeah. they believe to be true. Uh, which is, I'm not speaking bad about anybody. No, no, I do it no. in my own life. You know, the software I use today is the same software I've been using for 10 years. Why? I haven't had anything that forced me to look for another solution. Now, that's a mm-hmm. bit of an extreme, but it's it's kind of you need a kick in the pants to invest yeah. time and energy to investigate a new solution and then to understand it fully enough to decide if it's the right solution for you. And that's that's asking a lot of individuals who are already time-starved. Yeah, exactly. and that's exactly the problem I had uh, as a consultant as well, where, well, in the previous era, it was always top down, right? It was the CEO had decided that this was an interesting thing to look at. 
right? And so in her company, there was a team formed, planned 2030 or whatever, and they'd hire probably you as well and me as well and that kind of thing to kind of figure out what, what added meant for them, you know? And it was always business development kiddos filling the, the value chain and express, uh, spreadsheets and stuff like that and PowerPoints, right? And those things I saw strand every single time because additive didn't solve a problem. It just made problems for people in the organization. Um, so yeah, I completely agree with your assessment. This, the, the time star people will be like, what is this guy is going to mess my life up with this stupid new technology? Um, but whereas we're now we're seeing a much more bottom up approach. I think the jigs and fixtures is everyone's favorite example now where it's like, Oh, there's no regulatory. It's easy to do. And we're just going to do it to solve a problem. We're just going to do it. Boom here. And then you see it percolate through this organization because we're, we're, we're helping people. We're not like messing up their, their next quarter, you know? Yeah. Well, and you know, I love jigs and fixtures for a number of reasons, but uh, the big win on jigs and fixtures actually helped Stratasys with a white paper on justifying buying a Stratasys machine based on jigs and fixtures. And at the start of the project, um, I asked, you know, what's the win? And they said, save a few thousand dollars and save a few days or weeks versus, you know, jobbing it out to, an out, you know, outsourcing the work. And I, I felt that that was a weak story that, you know, I operate under the philosophy that human beings make emotional decisions justified in logic. So the time and cost for the fixture or jig is the logical thing, but it wasn't that compelling and digging in with their, customers who used it, uh, I asked a different line of questioning. And what came out was the real story is everyone has the need for more jigs and fixtures than they have. You go to any manufacturing company and maybe not so much today if they got additive, but if you ask them, are there strong applications for jigs or fixtures that you just don't have the time to get around to? So they're a B plus priority but there are a lot of A priorities that don't get them to that. And everyone will raise their hand on that. Well, the big win for additive is it's a path of least resistance to allow you to make these jigs or fixtures that didn't exist before. And now you talk about a justification, you know, that white paper's out there um, five, six years old. Uh, so the justification went from, I saved a thousand bucks on this fixture mm -hmm. to that fixture did not exist. And in one case, uh, it was used in a clean room environment for, mm -hmm. uh, to replace manual taping and masking for a coating operation. Mm -hmm. And uh, I asked the gentleman on the other end, I said, so how much did you save by doing that? He said, oh, it's not worthwhile to calculate. We haven't done that. And I asked him to humor me, and he did. And about a week later, he reported back that he, that he sent his cost accounting team after it to evaluate it. And instead of the couple of thousand dollars, they actually saved in the neighborhood of a hundred thousand dollars. Don't remember the exact number because they finally tallied up all that expensive clean room labor. Right. And the number just was huge. So that's the kind of things I challenge people to look for is the big win or solving the big problem. And then hopefully cost and time are fitting for your need, but that's what motivates people. And if, if you've heard me from the stage of the last couple of years, I've used the back against the status quo wall uh, analogy as a motivating factor. I, I firmly believe that we have very few innovators willing to take the risk and push. Uh, lots of people are going to stick in status quo until they're motivated to change. So the back against the status quo wall is one where they move because their choice is to do what they've always done and fail 
or to try something different and have a hope of succeeding. That's a big motivating mm -hmm. factor. But with that, with additive, you now, that now means that you have to be informed, educated, prepared to act on that need. So it's another big ask of people. I think they have to, if they don't already, have the understanding of the additive solutions that could work for them, you know, deeply appreciate them, the ins, the outs, the good, the bad, uh, so, they be, so that they can be prepared when their back is up against the status quo wall. Well, I'm sorry. I'm monopolizing this conversation. Let me turn it back over <laughs> no, to you, gentlemen. All right. It's all about you. It's it's all about you. <laughs> You're giving no, me ideas. I'll say that. You tell us bedtime stories. It's good. <laughs> so it's, uh... I've probably already put several <laughs> listeners to sleep. So yeah, uh, I will say so like, I do because I do manufacturing, and I'm now I'm like you know what? I'd actually not thought of using additive to make jigs, and I've been frustrated numerous times about you know usually when we need a jig, it's because we need to check a part or figure out a problem in the assembly process to prevent bad product from going out. Yeah. And uh, it, it frustrates me to no end when we have to wait a week or two weeks to get that jig because then we have to take production down or stop it at the point where we need the jig. Um, so, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and I guess I'm a dinosaur. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, your true cost now for you when you put one in, it's not even the savings I just described. It's what is the opportunity cost of production being shut down for right. an hour exactly. or a day or, or a day month. or whatever. And, yeah. and we get into big numbers. Uh, it, uh, decades ago, uh, there was a Stratasys reseller in, in Europe I was talking with. His point was, even if you can show $100,000 savings by buying an additive machine, it's a drop in the bucket versus the savings if someone invests the same $100,000 in a manufacturing operation. So you just by being able to show ROI doesn't mean that you're going to get a yes because there's other things competing for capital expenditure money, that budget, and they could likely show a much bigger return if you don't extend the value delivered for your company outward and beyond the usual things for that you consider for traditional processes so mm -hmm. absolutely yeah i think it's interesting that, that what we would expect and and this is the one thing i think we we're stuck at that we're seeing that some one application if people imagine it uh becomes widespread like let's use the jig example again then we see people do kind of extensions of the application my favorite is that people then start making like things like doorknobs or uh you know things like uh that are in around the office yeah exactly like little things that are in around the office like little cup holders for the espresso cups or whatever that kind of stuff you see it propagate but i'm still wondering how to take it further if you're really going to adopt additive in a let's say a large manufacturing organization how we would grow this organically within that company there's a lot of aspects for answers on that but the one that jumped to my mind immediately is the challenge of building a, a good business case related to what we were just talking about. But there's, there's not a lot of spot on information for an individual company to go to and say, ah, there's my business case. And since I, since I'm asking, and I think you need to look for wins that you never calculated before uh, it's a bit of a stretch, you know, and, you know, comparing it to a traditional process, um, most traditional manufacturing for production applications uh, it goes into inventory. So if that's the norm for molding and casting and forming and stamping, that's not part of the evaluation when they're costing things out to decide what's best. So what you've got to do is force new thinking and say, you know what, all of those have inventory requirements 
you know, let's figure out the true cost of carrying inventory and apply that reduction to additive. Now that's becoming more commonplace and, and discussed, but I still think very few people do that. And when you say cost of inventory, it's the cost of the square footage. It's the cost of insurance to cover that. It's the cost of loss, you know, due to scrap or breakage or theft. It's the cost of the employees to manage, control and locate that inventory. Uh, uh, let me show you one story. There's an aerospace company uh, this is five or six years ago. I was touring their facility, kind of an audit looking for applications. And they proudly showed me this room for some of their high-end stuff and said, we're going to be blowing out this wall to increase our inventory space by twofold. So really, really proud, you know, multi-million dollar investment. And we started looking and everything was in essentially Tupperware containers. So plastic totes. And I happened to look inside of one and there's this one high value component and 80% of the, t of the plastic tote was air. Mm. And I'm like, wait, wait, what about an idea where you make custom totes for each product, reducing the uh, square footage or the cubic footage yeah. taken by that, that tote? Do you even need to blow out that wall? Could this be a multi-million dollar savings? Now, I don't know if they did that, but that's the kind of thinking I really encourage yeah. to, uh, ex extend beyond what you know to be true, but that's a challenge. I, I don't do it well in my own life. No, no one does. I think the interesting thing I've tried is on a like a C level and also with finance people, like how much money do you have in, in how many millions or billions of dollars do you have tied up in stock, and how many, how much more efficient would you be if you did this? And it does always become this kind of he said, she said, kind of like this kind of very abstract conversation. I'd love for that to be a really always hard-hitting example yeah. of like these wins, like this tote idea, right? Or always like a kind of a, hey, we have a, you know, there's somebody who would readily be able to come from like, we have actually have, you know, 800 million in stock and we would save 100 million. And that kind of hard numbers. And we're kind of not getting there. So I'm always like kind of looking for new handholds to let these guys believe more without having them essentially the same thing as you but i think for a different angle like different angle or yeah. similar angle mm -hmm. so but just, it, just like have them believe more but not have them fall down because <laughs> they overreach you know well um, there's a if i can interject uh yeah. there's a book that i yeah, i forget to recommend anymore yeah. it's a little bit older but it's called it's not luck by eli goldratt who is the author of the yeah. classic manufacturing book called the goal which every manufacturing yeah person has read same style so it's novel format he's got a uh, protagonist easy read this one's got multiple aspects it's not as simple as control your bottleneck operation and that's how you find success but there's one story in there uh, using his protagonist where the guy is a 2d printer and he's in the mid volume mid quality range and he's getting squeezed by the digital new digital world and he can't really compete because the digital world is eating away his lower end and he can't compete on the high, high volume stuff. So the is, is not luck component of this is he rethought the business model and what he came to an aha moment in, you know, in, in questioning or interviewing his customers was that for the high volume stuff, more often than not, they'd buy double or triple what they really needed. And he, he boiled it down to, and he, I think they use the example of candy bar wrappers and, uh, boiled down to some um, investigation of recent history, and it proved that for every order of 5 million candy bar wrappers, 
on average, they threw away 2.5 million. So the real call, and that's because the marketing wants to put new and improved on it, or the government right. says, you know, your, your nutritional standards have to be labeled differently. Um, but with that bit of information, he, he then goes to his customers for the high-end stuff with a solution of what if I delivered more on demand, you know, the kind of volumes that right. I can deliver, uh, keep reducing your inventory, but more importantly, reducing, reducing your loss and working the numbers that way. And, you know, in this book, that's the winning solution. And that's the kind of stuff we have to do. So I, I'm sorry for yet another. No, it's, it's funny though, because it's the world is messy, right? You know, you're saying these things and I think of myself, but it's like um, inventory at the factory, I don't care about because it's the factory's problem. <laughs> inventory, once it's in a warehouse and a finished product, then I care about it um, because then I'm paying for it. So it's, it's interesting how like where along the line it's uh, affecting who. Therefore, that's, you know, everyone's got a different solution along that chain so to speak well and and different biases too. right so you know with additive we've got engineering and product development involved we've got manufacturing production personnel involved in your case we've got you know kind of the logistics and um storage component involved uh, everyone has different wants and needs and what you're saying is engineering is not necessarily looking after the needs of the inventory guys right yeah they're not motivated to. Why no. should they? Unless somebody beats them <laughs> over the head and says, you got to do something about this. So self-preservation. And, uh, and you probably involved a lot of these multinational kind of projects, large companies. You always kind of head, head into this politics and this kind of thing. Do you really think there's like a type of organization that's more readily able to take up out of it? Like, for example, startup over a really large multinational or or that kind of thing. You think there's a type of company uh, that's a, more of a laggard or more of a winner, uh, you know, that has a different adoption speed. We see this all the time, right? But yeah, but. yeah. It's, I'm glad you mentioned startups because the, there is very little history with a startup. So it's easy to break from the norms because they may not exist. So I think right. a young, um, flexible, adaptive company is the soft spot to go after the more demanding applications for, for 3d printing. Uh, in the bigger corporations, yeah, slow to move, lots of politics, uh, lots of hurdles to cross before you ever get there. Now, they have the advantage of having financial and human resources to throw at the situation, but they're not the fastest implementers. And you will, I guarantee you, even if 90% of the people love the solution, say a new additive solution for production, there will be 10% who fight it tooth and nail. You're threatening their dynasty, you know, I control injection molding kind of thing, yeah. or they perceive more risk than is really there. And depending on the uh, power of their voice, how much they're respected, they can have a big impact. The other thing, Joris, I want to bring up is uh, in size and large companies, the preponderance to run into somebody who's a self-proclaimed 3D printing expert, <laughs> who is an <laughs> Who does then, not know yeah. enough. Yeah. They know enough to be dangerous yeah. and then yeah. mislead the organization uh, yeah. down the wrong path. Yeah. That's scary to me. And uh, it, it, my, yeah. my word of advice to anybody is if you run into a consultant, a contractor, a possible employee, and they come across as I know it all, yeah. no one knows it yeah. all. Therefore, yeah. run as fast as you can. We're going to 3D metal tubes. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's, a, that's a great, you know, it's an obviously winning application, right? Right. 
No, I, I, there was a time when there was all these evangelists, right? 3D printing evangelists. And I was like, this is the one thing we don't need. It's like, it's like literally, if we look at everything, you know, we need yes. people on software, mechanical engineers, we need people on the, uh, like the integration and stuff. We don't need evangelists. Like everyone in the world is talking about our technology. And these guys are just like setting unrealistic expectations. And I always used to be like, look, there's a reason why a lot of these evangelists got killed. Yeah. <laughs> In previous times, yeah. no, I was, and I think those kind of people, I agree with you. I mean, there's a lot of like dangerous misconceptions on the positive side as well, where it's like we always, and we, and I think with this competence center type of way, which a lot of these corporates are doing, you can either do it well, you have a bunch of people in your organization that 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 can evaluate company wide. Uh, the, the types of opportunities and solutions that, that there are, but is there a bias there or either too optimistic or too pessimistic? It doesn't have really far reaching effects as well. No, absolutely. It, a conversation, a good friend of mine who works one of the, for the big three, one of the big three automakers in the U S uh, he, he made a statement and it just caused me to pause. And his statement was it's, ludicrous to expect all of our let's say engineers for dfam design for additive kind of concepts it's ludicrous to expect them all to have the level of knowledge for all the processes we make available in order to interpret you know design uh, intent and design execution it's, it's just it's not going to happen you know the company didn't have the resources to train them all you're going to have resistance and all that and he looked at me he said you need tiger teams you need a hub within your organization that is the go-to hub for, does it look like additive? Does it make sense for additive? What's the business case for additive? What technology should I use? What should I consider? What are the risks? Instead of trying to have every individual have that level of knowledge, which is, I mean, that's years and years of experience and, and, and or course, if you can find it, to get to that level to know that. So. Instead of trying to make everyone additive uh, capable, competent, or uh, experts, his point was build a team and make that a, a, a corporate-wide resource. And I couldn't agree more with it, with that. It's, yeah. it's the best strategy. Uh, you said you need Tiger Kings? I, I called it Tiger <laughs> Team. Tiger Team. Oh, okay, 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 okay. I thought you said yeah, we need Tiger Kings. And I was like, no, 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 no. no, no, no. Never watch. Never watch. So. <laughs> but um, no, I, th I think that's wonderful. And I think especially if you look at like, you know, the differences between technologies and the differences when you use them, and also like what certification you use them for, and that kind of thing. There's a lot to know there uh, for one simple, simple person to be able to kind of. Um, uh, comprehensively, you know, SLA and then also uh, sintering and all this other stuff. Oh, so I think that would be a really good approach to have like, like a varied uh, thing. I mean, I think one of the, one of the funniest things is uh, what I had to think of because we were talking about electrical engineers before is we, we evaluated, at one point evaluated a whole bunch of desktop machines and we saw that the biggest win, the biggest problem was with uh, firmware, right? And then not optimizing the printer for firmware and the other way around. And, and we didn't understand it. And we understand we, we finally got on a, it's a theory. And the theory was that they would only hire one electro engineering slash firmware guy and no one else in the organization mastered that discipline. So if he or she were bad, which <laughs> <then the company laughs> is for always forever more be bad because they would always like, there would be that one person and it's a single point of failure for, for the firmware. Meanwhile, mechanical engineers is two or three, right? If uh, Sarah's much better than Bob, then you'll find out. You know, 
uh, or they'll be able to iron out their differences. So I think that that that, that we do have we have a big people problem in, in AM because there are very few. This whole thing is being carried on very few sh- shoulders. Yeah. Oh, agreed. Agreed. I don't know what you're talking about. My code is perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I can't comment because I don't code. Right. I, <laughs> I just wrote a uh, formula in Excel. Does that count? <laughs> I think yeah. so. According to the new, you know, how you educate your child, uh, STEM stuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now you're calling me childish. childish. <laughs> I, I take offense on that. But, you know, if, if I can, Joris, bring this back full circle. You know, we're talking about setting mm-hmm. expectations. And now in the age of mm-hmm. COVID, uh, one of my um, bugaboos, hot buttons, irritant points is mm-hmm. – uh, supply chain fixing yeah. and this rampant conversation that a uh, uh, additive for 3d printing is the saving mm-hmm. grace for broken supply chains right mm-hmm. it, it can be don't get me wrong but mm-hmm. it leads people to believe you know the majority of my supply chain or all components and you know in reality even if a company is big and using additive you got a 10-piece sub-assembly there might be two pieces yeah. that are viable for additive which leaves the other eight that you got to still work on supply chain issues. So I don't want to discourage people from looking at additive as a supply chain fix, but I, but I do want to encourage them to consider it more as a, not a primary, but as a backup to kick in should problems arise in the future. So kind of a backup generator concept, lights go out, Mm -hmm. backup generator kicks on, but Mm -hmm. to do that, you have to be, well-versed and have your processes pinned down for additive because if you haven't done that and you kick on that backup generator and start kicking out additive parts, they may or may not satisfy your quality uh, considerations. So it's, you know, some people say it's in a watershed moment for additive because of the supply chain issues with COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think so. I, I think it I, gives us attention and, and gives us another lift of momentum through mm-hmm. awareness and interest but that can be dangerous too on the backside. It's, it's also uh, the misconception of how long it, like everyone seems to think you can flip a switch and then integrate out of, out of into your processes. And it's like, you have to take time to, to figure out how that's going to work as you're saying. Yeah. 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 Well, we don't even have, you know, it's yeah. for production, the majority of the work to make it a stable, predictable, dependable solution falls on the shoulders of the individual company because we're still developing those information stores on what really happens in the process, what affects the quality, uh, uh, what variables do I have to take control of, and what should I monitor on the back end to make all this work, plus integration into your MES and PLM. You know, it just goes on and on. But we don't have a broad base of those information stores. So even right there, you're well-educated, you understand additive, but you want to use it for production. you still got a lot of work to do. Yeah. to uh, yeah. take control like, of this beast. Yeah, simple things like I was talking with Alexander also, like from Autodesk, who's also on a complete I was just talking about this, like th- simple things like versioning or knowing which G-code you used for which file, what settings on the printer were used to make what part. It's, it's, it's super difficult to, to, to find that in, the, in the, the current system. So even things that they would expect would be there already uh, or may be absent for now. And I think Max and I were talking about this idea of like, let's say you're a shoe company, uh, you would uh, Swiss shoe company, and then you would you would make your additive, uh, your additive high-end super exclusive shoe in Switzerland. You would learn about additive and only sell several thousand pairs of them, and that could, as you say, act up act as your backup generator. It would give you enough expertise to switch to a part of making a part of your parts. You know, if things would really go very wrong. 
So I like that same similar paradigm. Um, I think we're like spectacularly we're agreeing on everything. Tom. Yeah. <laughs> hey, well, yeah, you you pick topics right up my uh, my alley yeah, yeah, that we happen to agree on. So if you yeah. think there's something we don't agree on, feel free to throw it out. And we should sure. usually. I mean, we usually Desktop metals. Like when, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when, uh, so usually, Tom and I have these really really long conversations uh, uh, about at a, at a, with some 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 alcoholic beverage at a trade show. Uh, right? no, no, I don't. Uh, and drink. then we end up. I, I, Oh, I mean, I mean, You're we, telling them the wrong thing. Okay. Uh, <laughs> oh, milkshakes. We have milkshakes. There we go. Uh, anyway, so and anyway, but th then we do. We typically are a little bit more less agreeable. But I think it touches me on one thing. You, you're involved with uh, with a mug. Yes. Uh, and and uh, we used to always exchange all sorts of information. These, these trade shows and things like that. And now we have a COVID to interrupt us. Um, how, how are you tackling that? How is are you doing as as a consultant person? Because it's a nightmare for me as well. And how and how are you tackling it as a mug? Let's say, uh, as a consultant, yeah, the bottom dropped out. Uh, people are yeah. not spending what they view as discretionary yep. dollars right now, so mm -hmm. it's it's really tough. Uh, you mm -hmm. know, advertising is getting hit. Um, I mm -hmm. additive machines are getting hit because they're not part of the must-have to move forward mm -hmm. uh, uh, movement. So anything that you can delay is mm -hmm. generally being delayed because of the lack of economic uncertainty. Uh, mm -hmm. A mug's uncertainty is when will this COVID thing, uh, when will he be able to take control of it? Mm -hmm. So, oh, well, first off, so for those that don't know, it's an abbreviation A mug, or, or I should say acronym. It's additive manufacturing, additive manufacturing users group. You have to be involved with a company that owns and operates additive manufacturing or 3D printing equipment to be allowed to come to the event. So it truly is a users group. And with that environment, what we foster is, um, last time we met in person, 2,200, 2,500 people, uh, very open, honest conversations and a level of sharing that blows most people's minds. Yeah. So we're very much about this, this interconnect and exchange of information. You know, you can call it networking, whatever. Uh, but what has us concerned is if we don't take control of this, now, right now, we're scheduled for March 14th through 18th, 2021 mm -hmm. in Chicago. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, yeah. If we have to go virtual, yeah. how do we replicate this environment of you and I having casual yeah, exactly. conversation and I discovering something that's going to impact my career or my mm -hmm. additive operations? Mm -hmm. And uh, so far, you know, all the things I've attended are very, very poor on engagement. You Agreed. Know, it's, yeah, it, it, totally. Oh. And also, I think people are getting turned off of virtual because without the throttle of someone saying, oh, you're, this is a commercial presentation, too much salesmanship, we're going to take you off mm -hmm. the agenda. That throttle's mm -hmm. gone because everyone can self-publish. And mm -hmm. I think in a lot of cases, it's happened to me, I don't know about you guys, but it looks like an interesting topic. I expect to be informed. They mention the topic, and then five minutes later, they're telling me why their machine is great at doing yeah. that intended application. So I just mm -hmm. got conned into a... 20 minute, 30 minute uh, sales pitch. And mm -hmm. the more that happens, the less likely people are going to turn to virtual. So networking is an issue. And then we'll, mm -hmm. we'll well be poisoned. You know, the time a mug yeah. so right now, good news is we're proceeding ahead and a mug is working very closely with um, the officials that oversee Chicago, Illinois and the state of Illinois. Uh, mm -hmm. Obviously, we've got to adhere to whatever protocols they have, but mm -hmm. working with the hotels and all that to figure out how to um, 
adhere to best practices on that mm -hmm. and and talking with uh local officials to make sure that we're still on on track so can't guarantee that it's going to happen but right now we're proceeding full steam ahead okay that's awesome i think we're also trying to figure out like a way to do like a social engagement type of a thing like kind of like a more like that i would lead a conversation but i'd be the moderator more than like so I talk much less than I'm doing right now, for example. I just like try to get other people to talk. So we're, we're kind of thinking about how to kickstart that kind of stuff. But I see that as a big failing as well. I think also the scuttlebutt and also just the, the stuff you don't hear in the presentations, that's, yeah, that, that's the thing I'm missing the most. The, um, the closest... Hear, sorry, keep yeah. going, Drew. Uh, no, the, 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 just the idea that you hear that somebody has a, has a machine that you're also looking at, and then you're like, oh, wait, I'll go talk to him and then find out how it is, you know? Yeah. that kind of stuff uh that's like super valuable and then or you could say oh wait i don't have to buy the machine i'll just like order from him or something you know so that kind of stuff is just like uh you know impossible what were you about to say max right i was just say the closest i've because i've attended a whole bunch of these virtual things and um the closest i've had is actually an experience with a an, a 3d avatar based software it's called verbella where you can it's like a virtual yeah. conference in the sense of there's a yeah. conference center and a, and a lecture room yeah. and all that. But the bigger point yeah. is, is that you can overhear people's conversations if you get close to them. <laughs> what? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So like there's a distance value and whatnot and you can chase people down. Like we had a booth and yeah. we watched someone walk by and, and one of my colleagues yeah. like virtually, you know, ran over and chased the person down and said, Hey, you should come look at our stuff. And they're like, Oh, that's interesting. That's um, so that was the closest I've seen. Otherwise it's just like, uh, it's almost like a, that, that sounds cool. I'm going to have to check it out. Check it out. It's the closest that. it's yeah. It's the closest yeah. I've had to a positive experience. Yeah. Uh, so I recommend checking it out. If, if for yeah. some reason uh, it can't happen in Chicago, I'd say that's the only thing that I can recommend to date that could, supplement in a reasonable way okay. never heard of that thank you very much yeah no i don't work for verbella but they they do make yeah. good stuff well i've got a million dollar idea uh yeah. that no if problem. any i i don't have the time energy or money or smarts to uh, do it and it is a coding yeah. thing max so uh, uh, if anyone runs with this idea and develops a product i want uh, a unlimited lifetime license to use it <laughs> or any organization i'm involved with so the idea uh, is to go ahead and establish rooms, you know, or some kind of structure. So, you know, generally what people are talking about, but you do a, a live transcription of all the conversations converted into a word cloud that now as I'm passing by this, room, oh. I look at the word cloud and see what's most frequently being talked about. That's so I don't, I don't have to listen to the conversation. I like that for Verbella, but now I can look at a text-based thing and say, Oh, this is all about uh, FFF. Right. Mm -hmm. Fabrication. I need to know more and you pop in and then you discover whether mm -hmm. or not they're talking about the aspects you're looking at. But yeah, live generation mm -hmm. of word cloud. It's posted, you know, live feed over the room or as a banner mm -hmm. kind of a signage. As uh, you but, I like that, dude. Like the interesting that. thing is you could, or you could of course do like you could do it that it excludes certain things. Right. So imagine you're doing FFF, but you're not interested in materials. Right. So then you could then you would all the material stuff would be kind of like uh, minus one points, right? You're more interested you in software. Yeah. yeah, you filter it. So it's only I'm a software guy. I'm from Autodesk, and I come there for uh, making FFF software. Then I'm not interested in the filament, maybe not immediately. And then so th then I put filament as a, as a kind of exclusionary term, right? And then uh, and then and then I only get people talking about software. Or I put like Cura, and that's something I'm super interested in. 
and on the positive side, you know? I like that would be that, really yeah. interesting. That's great. Yeah, but then also, there's another thing you could do with that. And that is that you could just take a snippet of some guy saying, Cura is the leading uh, slicing package, whatever, right? And then all those snippets you could hear. So then it's like more like a kind of podcast kind of thing. You cue all the people talking about Cura, right? Everyone. Well, well guys, I think uh, I think the audience has just uh, witnessed the birth of a uh, <laughs> three-way partnership to develop a new conferencing <laughs> platform. So my question is, who's the money man on this? Max, you, you run your own bit. You got your own business. Me and. Uh, yeah, we're just of course, our employees or right, you're just consultants. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah. Uh oh, no, actually, no. We're, Max and I first have to start a 3D printing ethics board. That's so right. That's already that, we already agreed to doing that in an earlier episode. I like that, <laughs> but but Max. I, I am going to take offense. You said we are just consultants. How offensive! Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> just I, just, I meant for this venture that you were consultants yeah. for, for okay. software. <laughs> Thanks for the qualification. Yeah. yeah. We also don't know how to code. This is a problem. Right. <laughs> but um. So and and if, okay. Now we've mentioned software. So do you think is software going to be a, like? Generally, we ask the question like, is is software a bigger component or is it important? And of course, yeah. Uh, we know it's important. Are there areas where you're seeing that we really need software to play a role or we really need better software that we don't have? Um, but let me just start off. I, I support your uh, position. I, I think software going forward in the next five years-ish, maybe more, uh, is key. And for the reason that it, it can shoulder some of the burden or the heavy lifting of the knowledge you need to run, manage, oversee, uh, and design for additives. So I, I really get excited about software. Uh, mm -hmm. Since the conversation so much on production, I think we've just got some big gaping voids in anything that schedules, monitors, controls, oversees mm -hmm. production, mm -hmm. uh, reports true quality out of the machine. You know, the whole melt pool monitoring kind of things from metal additive, um, and then all the way out to you know inventory and logistics as we've talked about. So, in uh, there, it's it's not straightforward because again, additive is or three D printing is. Well, I should have said this early on. For everyone in the audience, I treat 3D printing and additive manufacturing as synonyms. Many people don't, but I do use them interchangeably. But uh, additive has so much in common with traditional part-making technologies, uh, but it's the differences that are important or could cause challenges. So, you know, you get down to scheduling software. Additive years ago, we you know, discovered that it breaks down because it's, it's a batch operation. And the scheduling software was usually, you know, serious production kind of thing. So it's those little shifts that mean that the solutions you already have uh, are going to be broken in some way. So how do you incorporate the shifts into whatever software you're going to use, uh, such as MES? And, you know, how do we fold it into PLM? Good news is lots of work going into that. So... I think we're going to see great things from software, and I think it will help to increase the adoption rates mm -hmm. in additive manufacturing. Mm -hmm. And I think yeah, I completely agree with you again. Um, and, and do you think you keep mentioning that the knowledge is a big problem? And have you thought of like training or giving trainings and stuff like that, or or helping that knowledge gap somehow? Uh, I'm not really a trainer. My wife tells me I'm a horrible educator because I lose patience too quick. So, no. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you twice, and if you don't get it the yeah. second time, uh, I'm frustrated. So, it's even also, uh, you know, I've been around additive and for the first from 1990 to 2002 work for service bureaus. So, I've been yeah. around the execution side of things. 
might have been so removed that um, I hesitate because I don't have the first hand experience anymore to get down to tell people what buttons to push or right. uh, how to do design, how to you know properly control the manufacturing floor. So uh, weakness of the information stores I have on the execution side, just mm-hmm. and a lack of personality for doing training. Uh, come together. And say, no, that's, that's not me. So you've been doing at it for what thirty years now. Let yeah. me ask you in this space: What have you been most wrong about and most right about? Oh, I've never been right. So we'll <laughs> uh, no, most right about five right K yeah. desktop printers. Yeah, yeah, I was going to go there too, Joris. Yeah, um, I'll go. Uh, so I, I've played the emperor has no clothes, the little boy in the story uh, mm-hmm. since '95. Mm-hmm. So most right about. Um, I would, you know, I stood up I, on stage. I wrote about it and said, you know, this concept of uh, everyone having one in their home, yeah, okay. isn't going to happen. <laughs> uh, and, and, and it's not a fun role to play because all the people want to believe this great news. So you're, you're sticking a pin in their balloon. But right. uh, where I was wrong on that was uh, the there were more machines sold in that space than I expected because there were other applications that cropped up. I hadn't conceived. So, you know, the artistic you know, mindset yeah. and uh, you know, that sort of thing. So I was right. And I was wrong at the same time. <laughs> uh, most wrong goes back to the early nineties. And this is part of what created my personality. I was part of the body of conversation telling injection molding, and CNC machining that we're going to eat your lunch. We're going to take away all your work. And these big, bold claims and predictions that the world's going to change. And um, then we called it rapid prototyping. Rapid prototyping is going to conquer the world. And obviously I was wrong uh, with that statement back then, but that taught me the hard lesson back to, you know, over-promising, under-delivering. All we did was set expectations way too high. We couldn't deliver on people coming to us and saying we want parts. And the other key thing is I really believe we poked two sleeping bears who were kind of running and it's good enough the way it is. And all of a sudden we start seeing, you know, better cam, high-speed machining, uh, short-run tooling, you know, for 10 to 50,000 pieces, you know, done in a month. Uh, So we created our own negative environment by doing that. And I keep going back to that as a reason for me being um, or doing what I do and the kind of information I share. So, and Todd, since Max is here and uh, is a co-inventor of the 3D printing pen, I was just wondering what your thoughts are on 3D printing pens. Very cool. Congratulations, Max. Thank you. But I put my foot down and say that is not a 3D printing pen. I, I think it's a 3D pen. I'll agree with that. I'll agree with that because, you know, it's, it's, I'm a stickler for definitions, guys. And it's not because I feel the industry should own a term. It's that the more people co-opt the term, the more, uh, dis, not distilled, the more diverse it becomes, so it loses meaning. So, you know, ASTM standard, the definition of added manufacturing slash 3D printing is 3D digital data driven or something along those lines. So it requires uh, no human interaction and obviously max someone's got to pick up the pen so we got to have wetware on ours that's true (laughs) in fairness fairness, we used the 3d printing pen more as a way of trying to express to people what was going on because when we initially launched this so many people couldn't grasp the basic concept of i'm extruding plastic and then using that 
to draw or make a physical object because 3D printers were still difficult for people to like grasp around, even though they've been out for 20 plus years at the time. Um, so that was part of why we were like, I'll oh, just co-op this word for this purpose. <laughs> it, it, it co-op's the right word. You know, and I get where you're coming from. It makes perfect sense. And you know, you've got to carve out immediate awareness or uh, appreciation of what you're doing when you're trying to sell it. So I get it. It makes perfect right. sense. Uh, but you know, honestly, when you first announced, when 3Doodler first announced, I, I was like, oh, shoot, here's another one. Because that was kind of in the same time frame as Mink for 3D printed cosmetics. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and all they were doing is custom blending and depositing that in a, uh, a tray. tray. I remember that, actually. So yeah. It, it, yeah. it's, you know, it's a you know, personal custom blending thing. Now, they still exist. I just checked them out on the website this morning, and they still call it 3D printing makeup. Now they're down to you put a sheet of paper in or a special material. You pick an image, and it will print the image using pigmented cosmetics and then you can drag a brush or a finger across this 2d surface to pick up the color that you want and i'm like there's nothing 3d in that yeah there's a, that's a two-dimensional image yeah it's it's a two it's a regular printer that happens to use a different medium and that being cosmetic materials so uh but you know i i, I don't use one i don't have you know a, a three doodle 3d printing pen but i Great love repair tool I, you know, I love the concept. I mean, it's, it's uh, engaging. You, know, you can use it for fun and entertainment and education, you know, uh, practicality, depending on your needs. So it's a great invention, without a doubt. Yeah, so. I, I think it's a very, I mean, but it's not a 3D printer. And we, and we only ever compared it to 3D printers to give people the understanding of what was going on. But, you know, like that you're the X, 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 Y, Z arm, your arm is the arm because it's a way, it was a way of conveying that concept. Now people, I think some people, I mean, there's still a lot of people that don't know about 3D pens or 3D printers, but those that do have a better way of understanding that this is more of a, a thing that you use. It's a tool. It's like yeah. a Dremel. It's not a, it's not a CNC machine. <laughs> yeah. Part of this sensitivity to, to wording and language it cropped up five years ago. I'm talking with a guy. So additive is about 25 years old as an industry at the time. Talking to this guy, and he tells me he's been doing additive manufacturing for 35 years. And I'm like, wait, you were working on some of these stealth projects in the early days to bring the technology out? No. Are you an idiot? No. And I said, how can you claim you do additive manufacturing? I'm a welder. Uh. <laughs> so he's, he's depositing a bead no, in the yeah, 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 you know, yeah, following yeah. a 3d contour perhaps right and it's adding uh -huh. material so it's like i get it you can you can legitimately claim that you're manufacturing additively therefore additive manufacturing yeah. but if if i if the industry allows that to be an interpretation additive manufacturing is meaningless you know right uh, that's where i come from and, no, I, I get and, and even further back you know the industry was first called rapid prototyping. And now when it started to get some momentum, people who were doing traditional processes to make prototypes were feeling the heat. So they started coming out and saying, even if they're using a CNC mill, they would say, I'm rapid prototyping because they were prototyping rapidly. So it's a legitimate claim, but as soon right. as you allow that in, now if I say I'm doing rapid prototyping, I've got no identity. So for me, it's all about language that concisely communicates what you're up to and the more you allow it to be co-opt 
the less it has that kind of inf- impact short concise in- yeah. information exchange so. yeah. i i rapid prototype i use clay and i just have a presentation i did I, once about like a, a really revolutionary new machine which is actually like a kind of a clay wheel thing a potter's wheel, <laughs> yeah, potter's wheel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. cool man cool. yeah uh, um Thank you so much. I thought that was a lot of fun to do and a lot of fun to be around. And I think uh, we all learned something and it was a really nice conversation. So thank you so much, Todd, for being on the 3D pod. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed the conversation as well. Yeah, it was good. Awesome. And yeah, thank you as well for Max for being on uh, along with us. Always my pleasure, Joris. Uh, awesome. And uh, yeah, uh, my name is Joris Peels and thank you so much for, for listening. Uh, keep our suggestions on guests and things like that coming. And we have some really awesome episodes lined up for you uh, in the coming uh, weeks. So that's looking really awesome, uh, really great. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for your time. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint.com. underscore